0: timeless theme Earth and heaven will pass away It's not a dream Bow down to sing. The only sound is the praises to Christ our King. Let's take our Bibles today and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Again, we've been in our series, Never Settle, and of course that's our new theme for the year. And so we're going to begin with verses 4 and, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and then we'll go from there. Um, 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There in first Chronicles chapter four, beginning verse nine, we read, Jabez was more honorable than his brethren, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, O oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, that thine hand might be with me, that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. We've been talking a lot about this idea of never settling. And we've said that it seems that more and more people, especially believers, are buying into this idea of settling. It seems that we settle so often in our lives, whether it be professionally or whether it be personally or even spiritually. Boy, we've got to be in a place in our lives where we say, I'm never going to settle in those areas of my life. Um, we've said that our perfect Savior will only truly be happy with a perfect effort on our part. And uh, we can't settle for just simply doing well. We can only be happy with doing our best. We said we cannot settle for making it. We must be happy reaching our potential. We cannot be content with mediocrity. F.B. Meyer once said, let us be inspired with a holy ambition to get all that God is willing to bestow. That's exactly what you and I as believers need to be content with. Anything less is settling. So why do we settle? We said, well, we settle because we get lazy. We settle because we get comfortable or things become familiar. We settle because we're afraid or insecure. So instead of being lazy, comfortable, afraid, or insecure, we need to exhibit the characteristics and quality that ensure that we never settle. And we said, well, what are those qualities? What are those characteristics that we see in others throughout Scripture who never settled? Well, we first began with this idea of Jabez. and We spoke about Jabez and the fact that he had a heart for God. It's only when we have a heart for God and place His will above our will or ourself that we overcome the many obstacles that cause us to settle. Again, we said that Jabez never settled. He always wanted to accomplish or do more for God. He always pursued a stronger, more fervent relationship with God. That he always sought to perfect his character by fleeing from Satan, from sin, in hopes of escaping the chains of sin and the consequences of sin. And we said that God, like any good father, wants so much for his children. He wants so much for you, if you know him as your Savior and Lord. And if you don't, I promise you, he wants more for you, too. The only thing that hinders his ability to provide the many blessings he intends to bestow upon us is when we settle. So God looks down from heaven this morning. He longs to hear a heart that says that we want more of him. A heart that wants more from him. A heart that wants more for him. Jabez had a heart for God. We now turn our attention to some other Christians in the Bible, or should I say characters in the Bible, who never settled and whose characteristics and qualities caused them to never settle in their life. And so we noted the first thing we need a heart for God. If we're not going to settle, if we're going to say, I never, I'm never going to settle, then we need a heart for God. What else do we need? Well, let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue and share a few others. Uh, characteristics and qualities that we need father we come to you we do ask for your leadership today I'm begging you to show up in this place I know you promised that wherever two or more gather you'd be here and also you said that you'd live in us you'd never leave us nor forsake us today I'm asking that you would show up in a mighty way may the power of the Holy Spirit fall upon this place may we feel your presence and know that you are with us and in our midst We're needy people today. We can pretend to be perfectly fine, but the truth is there are needs in all of our lives. May we, Father, open our hearts up now to you and allow you, Father, to begin to root out the need and to point it out and then to meet that need. Sometimes we want to put on and present a strong front. There's nothing wrong with that to some degree, but, Father, you know our hearts, you know ourselves better than we do may we at least tear down the walls that keep you from working in our lives. Those inside walls, those walls that hinder your spirit from working and moving. We ask that now you'd speak to our hearts, you'd move in a mighty way, do a work that only you can. Holy Spirit, we give you control of this room, this place. May you take control of me and every listening ear. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. So we've already said that if we're going to never settle, we need a heart for God. But number two, we're going to need some convictions. Convictions. I believe in the Word of God we find three Hebrew children that can teach us something about those. Take your Bible, if you would. Turn over to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. When we start talking about convictions, we're talking about something that is rooted in a principle, a Bible principle, a Bible truth. We go to the Word of God and we identify that Bible truth. And we say, you know what? I need to live by that truth. It's a principle in the Bible, a Bible truth, I should say, that we have to live by. Well, from that, we develop our convictions. And the conviction is a personal belief based upon that Bible principle. So I read it, I hear it, I recognize it in the Word of God that That Bible principle and then I say you know what I believe I need to live by that principle I'm going to create a conviction in my life and then that conviction then will be protected by a standard we often talk about standards and some people really don't like the word standard but there's not one industry in the world that doesn't have standards there's not one restaurant that doesn't function with standards There's not one boss, one uh, employer that doesn't have some standards. Standards are important in our lives. And in this case, as far as a believer is concerned, a standard is a policy that helps us keep our convictions. And our convictions are rooted in a Bible principle. So we know that that conviction is rooted in Scripture. That it's truth. And I've got to abide by it. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to Read about three Hebrew children that had some conviction. Notice Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura. Take a cubit and just say, for instance, it's a foot and a half, which that's, there's two different sizes of cubits. It depends on who's utilizing it. I believe here we could safely say it's a foot and a half. So we're going to just multiply 1.5 times whatever it might be here in this particular case. Three score cubits of 60 times one and a half gives you 90 feet. Pretty good sized fella here he's created, right? Pretty big Dude. He sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. That's a mouthful, by the way. Then the princes, the governors, and captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, and sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together into the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. I don't know, that seems like a little overkill to me. It's burning, it's fiery, and it's a furnace. I think fiery furnace would have been quite sufficient myself. But God makes sure that we are very aware that this is no joke. It is a burning, fiery furnace. We turn to verse 12 now. And we note that although this decree had been sent forth, we notice in Daniel three twelve there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego; these three, O King, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So now we have these three young men. They had been carried away from uh, basically Israel. They've been planted in Babylon, they've become leaders in that culture, that society. And now they will not bow to the image. Now they will not worship the image. Notice Daniel three fourteen. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, because of course, somebody tattled on them, if I got a bow to that stupid thing, you will too. Now that probably isn't how it went down, but They tattled on him. They had it out for him anyway. I guarantee you that. And so now Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, bring those three fellows to me. I can't have my leaders disobeying my rules. If the leaders are disobeying, then the people will too. Good principle. It's a biblical one too, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 14, spake and said unto them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do ye serve? The, you, you, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made? Well, he's like that's good. Everything will be. Well, We'll call it all even. Everything will be fine. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is it that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answering and said to, uh, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Let me tell you something, king. Our God can deliver us out of that burning, fiery furnace, but if he doesn't, I guarantee you it will be delivered from your hand. Even if it's in death. You, you know, I'm telling you now, God's going to be able to deal with this one. But if not, be it known to thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the image, golden image, which thou hast set up. We're not bound one way or the other. We are not bound. Now, these three Hebrew children, they believed something they were willing to stand for. You think about it now. They were willing to stand for it, and in this case, they were willing to die for it. Can I make a statement? And I think it's a very true one. If you won't stand for truth, you'll never die for it. If you won't stand for it, you will never die for it. See, they wouldn't bow to an image. They wouldn't worship an idol. They wouldn't serve another God. They wouldn't settle no matter the cost. They wouldn't settle for being a nominal Christian. They wouldn't settle for simply being good enough believers. They wouldn't settle for being fair-weather fans of God. They were all in, even if it meant a burning, fiery furnace. They were all in. See, their convictions ran so deep that they were willing to forfeit their very futures as a result. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at obituaries or I hear about people dying, there's something about somebody that's young dying that bothers me more than somebody old dying. I mean, if I hear about somebody that's 70, 80, or 90 dying, it's different than if I hear about somebody that's 15, 20, or 25, or 30. There's a difference. It feels different, and to me it is different in a sense. I mean, these young men now, here they are in the prime of their life. They were young when they came to Babylon. They're probably not much older, and here they are now. I don't know. Are they married? Do they have children? What's their personal life like? Their professional life, of course, is blowing up. I mean, they're doing extremely well. They're certainly successful in that regard. And here they stand before a king who's built this image, and he says, you will bow to that when you hear the music. Or you'll be cast into a burning fiery furnace and they said, you know what? Our lives mean nothing to us. It's not even remotely close. There is no decision to make here, king. We will not bow. We have some convictions. And that conviction says, the word of God says, you do not bow to an idol. You do not bow to an image. We'll not bow! Even if it means dying. This was no preference. This was a conviction. This was rooted in a Bible principle. They said, we'll not compromise our faith, we'll not compromise our beliefs just because we want to protect our futures, because we want a few more years of life. It's not worth it! They disregarded their position. They disregarded their power. They disregarded the prestige that they had accumulated. These men had convictions, and those convictions kept them from, from surrendering. They chose to face a burning, fiery furnace rather than to settle. They believed it was important to be loyal to God no matter what. They wouldn't settle for anything less. See, if you and I plan to never settle, we better have some convictions. And I don't know what I would have done. I've not been in that position yet, but I don't know exactly what I'd do, but I'd pray to God that I had the courage, the conviction, and the, 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 the willingness to give my life for the Lord Jesus Christ if called upon to do so. I'd pray I wouldn't compromise, that I wouldn't settle. But like these three Hebrew children, I'd say, we'll never settle. We have some convictions, King. So we need some convictions if we're never going to settle. A heart for God, convictions, but what else? We need some confidence, confidence. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's interesting to me as we kind of go back to that point as you're turning to the passage, but You know, in the early church, we watched men, women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandparents give their lives for the sake of the gospel. I mean, they had some deep convictions. Can you imagine as a mother standing before a consulate, knowing that if you don't recant your position toward Christ, that you're going to die and leave your children motherless? You say, Well, God would never ask me to do that, and I will never do that. Then you have no convictions. We wonder why we settle. You say, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying what I would do in the midst of it. I'm saying, What's the standard? Have you read the standard? Have you looked at the standard? I'm not talking about what does society say. I'm not talking about what does mom and dad, did they teach you. I'm not talking about what does grandma and grandpa believe about things like that. I'm asking you, what's the Bible say about it? What's God think about those things? Were the three Hebrew children idiots because they gave their life not bowing or potentially would have given their life not bowing? You're stupid. You three are idiots. You need to wake up to the fact that there's more people you can help by staying alive than being dead. That's how we think today, isn't it? But That's not what God showed us in the Bible. Isn't it funny that God gave us them as an example? Why wouldn't he have showed us somebody that said, I'm sorry, but I have a family to take care of. I'm sorry, but I have a culture that I have to change. I'm sorry, but I have a church to continue to be a blessing to. I'm sorry, but I have parents that I have to take care of in their old age. I'm sorry, but why didn't God do that? Why did he show us this example? Could it be because this is the standard? Amen. Convictions are something that we ought to hold high in our life. Amen. That there are some things worth not bowing, no matter even if it costs us and everyone around us to some degree, because there's bigger things at stake than just our comfort and the lives of others around us. There's an eternity that matters. Amen. There are souls that weigh in the balance. Yes. That's, none of that's in the notes, obviously. But I, I'm sorry, but the reality is today is that I think we've gotten so far away from a biblical standard that most of us wouldn't know what a conviction was if it bit us in the backside. <laughs> I'll preach, I'll do the preaching. Thank you. If you and I plan to never settle, we better have some convictions. Beliefs that we'll both live by and die for. Now, now we need some confidence, though. Here we are now in 1 Samuel chapter 17. By now, you're probably going, oh, I know this one. And you do, don't you? You've been here before, right? David and Goliath. You could probably tell me the story real well. And you know what? I'm glad you could. But in order to never settle, we're going to have to possess some confidence. Now watch what goes on. We know that there's two armies. There's two factions. We know that there are the Philistines on one side, there's the Israelites on the other. In between is the valley, the Valley of Elah. We know that the Philistines have this giant named Goliath who would come down into the valley and he would therefore he would blaspheme the armies of Israel. He would mock their God. And when he showed up on the scene, people would flee, the Bible tells us. They were so afraid of him. Notice what the Bible says here in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 24. We're going to note now that David, on the other hand, he never settled. When all others would settle, David never settled. And I want you to note his confidence. In the passage, we're going to note, first of all, his confidence, how it's being heard in his conversation with the soldiers. Look, listen to his confidence. He's speaking to the soldiers now. He's arrived on the scene. He's heard the voice of Goliath. He's seen the men flee. He's watched them struck with fear in their hearts. And here's how he responds. 1 Samuel 17, 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Verse 26. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I don't know about you, but that's a man that's standing up right now. I mean, he's got all these other soldiers that are cowering at the voice of this man, the presence of this this man, Goliath, but not David. You say, yeah, well, everybody's, you can have a lot of big talkers, but we'll see if he walks the walk. Well, we know how it turned out, don't we? What we find here is some confidence. He's saying, listen, who's going to shut that big mouth up? Who in the world's going to just stand? Are we going to stand by and listen to him blaspheme our God and put down the armies of Israel? Come on, what are we going to do about it? What's going to happen to the man that shuts him up? Because he assumed somebody would step up, but they were willing to settle. But you see his confidence there. It's heard in his conversation with the soldiers. Notice, turn to chapter 17, verse 32 now. We're going to see his confidence in his conversation with the king. He's now directed to the king. The soldiers listen to him talk like this, and all of a sudden the king hears there's a man that says he's willing to go fight the the giant. He says, I'll bring him to me. I want to meet this young fellow. I want to meet this guy. And so David said to Saul, chapter 17, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of the mouth, out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. I don't know about you but that sounds like a pretty confident young man. We see his confidence in his conversation with the soldiers. We see his confidence in the conversation with the king. But now I want you to notice his confidence in the conversation that he has with the enemy himself. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 44. This is a confident young man. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give thy flesh into the fowls of the air, and to the beasts of the field. And said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield, But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into, my, into our hands. Man, I don't know about you but that's confidence. Can you imagine? This isn't some puny little dude standing across the way. This isn't some You know, eight or nine-year-old that's dressed up like a warrior and David's facing him. No, we're talking about somebody that's been a warrior from the time he was a child, been trained in the art of warfare. He's over nine feet tall, close to ten feet tall, probably four hundred and fifty pounds, over four, over four hundred and fifty pounds. Can you imagine? Over four hundred and fifty pounds of all just muscle, molten muscle. He was trained as a killer. He was ruthless, he was tough, he was ungodly, he cared about no one but himself, and here he is now standing in that valley facing David, and David's facing him, and David says, you're going down, big boy. That's confidence. But note the source of that confidence. See, one might point to the victories that David experienced over the lion and the bear. And there's no doubt that confidence comes from such experiences, especially when those experiences lead to victories. No doubt about that. I'll not dispute that. But that doesn't really paint the whole picture here of where his confidence lies. It wasn't just in past victories. Notice what the Bible says in verse 37 as he speaks to the king again. Verse 37, he says, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. It's the Lord that delivered me, king. King. It's God, the God of glory that gave me the ability and the, the opportunity to do what I did. Let me tell you something, that lion, that bear, if it was just me, it had been a real big mess and it'd have been me all over the place. But no, it was a mess all right, but it was all them going down this time because my God was in my corner. Amen. His confidence was in the God he served. David gave God the credit for the victories. His confidence was in God. That lion grabs the sheep and David says, I'll not settle for that. I have to get that sheep back. The bear comes along and tries the same thing. Well, David's not in a settling mood that day. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd be tempted to settle a little bit. I mean, I got a, a few penny stocks, you know, and they're not worth a whole lot. I got 150 shares of this one stock. It's at least $2.50 a share. Man, I've been rolling in the dough. I think I've made $30 or $40 on it already. And I'm going to tell you something. If all of a sudden, uh, you know, I I mean, I'm not one to... Losses aren't something I enjoy. But you know what? I work hard not to have to settle for a loss in my penny stocks. But can I tell you, if I'm out there in the middle of the night or throughout the afternoon and a bear or a lion comes seeking a sheep and I've got about 200 or 150 sheep and they grab one of them, I think I'll settle for a little loss. Not David. He wouldn't settle for nothing. You want to know why he never settled? Because he had confidence in his God. Huh. There are going to be plenty of giants in our lives that will threaten and intimidate us, hoping that we'll lay down our sword, but confidence in God will keep us from settling. It's it's clear, it's obvious that David's faith was rooted in his strong belief in God. See, when others settled for life, what I mean by that is, remember the giant goes down into the valley, and the moment he shows up and he starts to spew his, his, his wicked, vile rhetoric, those men flee from him because they want to save their life. When others settled for life, David would settle for nothing less than living. There's a difference between life and living. You've been there. A family member, a friend, or some loved one is in a bed. Oh, they're living. I mean, they're, they're alive, but they're not living. They can't get out of bed. They can't do anything. They're stuck there all the time. And while they're coherent, all they wish to be able to do is get out of that bed, get back to church, get back busy for God, but they can't. They can't. They're alive, but they're really not living, even in their own mind. There's a difference. Can I tell you, without a confidence in God, you as a Christian might be living, excuse me, alive, but you haven't started living yet. There's a lot of Christians that are are alive in Christ, but they're not living yet. You're gonna have to get some confidence in your God or you're gonna forever be frozen. You won't move forward. You won't fight the battles. You won't face the obstacles that come before you. You need some confidence. And that confidence is rooted in your God. It can't be rooted in your experience even. It can't just be rooted in your education. It can't be rooted in just what you've experienced in life. It has to be your God. If you're going to never settle, if I'm going to never settle, we're going to need some confidence, confidence in God. from It's interesting, David as well had some convictions, didn't he? Remember David, he says, is there not a cause? That's conviction. And now we find he has some confidence. So he's got convictions and he's got confidence. Can I tell you what that led to? Courage. It led to courage. That's our next one. If we're going to never settle, we're going to need some courage. Look at uh, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua, of course, has been Moses's protege. He could be considered somewhat of an intern, if you will, and he served Moses for years. And now, after the death of Moses, the Lord spake to Joshua, the Bible says. Now, the fact that God spake to Joshua reveals that God endorsed the passing of the mantle from Moses to Joshua. See, where once God spoke to Moses, he's now speaking to Joshua. Where once God guided the children of Israel through the leadership of Moses, he's now guiding them through the leadership of Joshua. Where once God encouraged the people through Moses, he's now encouraging the people through Joshua. The fate and the future of Israel now rested on the shoulders of Joshua. Notice verse 1. Joshua chapter 1, and after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Notice verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give unto them, even to the children of Israel. So he tells them, Now listen, uh, Joshua, arise, go over this Jordan. Everywhere your foot touches, that's going to be yours. I'll be there with you, he goes on to tell them. He says, there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, and I will be with you. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, in verse 5. And he says, listen, I'm telling you, I'm there for you. Not only that, but notice what he goes on to say. Not only verse 1 and 2, verse 5, but notice verse 6. He goes on to give him a directive. He says, be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Notice now, a courage, good courage isn't even enough. He goes on to even express the need for more courage. Only be thou strong and very courageous, he says. That thou mayest observe to do all uh, according to the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So all of a sudden, he goes from Moses being the man to Joshua being the man. God speaks to him, proof positive that the mantle's been passed. And he says to him, listen, you go over that, Jordan. You take the people with you. And I want you to know that there's not going to be anybody that can stand against you. I want you to realize that I'll be with thee. I'll not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. Oh, no, wait a second. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Joshua had had the privilege of recognizing and remembering God's past track record. I mean Joshua remembered how God delivered them from Egypt, how he brought them across the Red Sea, how he guided them through the wilderness, how he provided them with manna, how he gave them the victory over after victory, after victory over their enemies. He remembered all of those things. Now Joshua and the people stood just miles away from the promised land. Joshua could have wilted under the pressure. He could have caved to his critics. He could have surrendered to the fear. But he had two very important things. One, he had God's promises. In verse 8, the passage says, "This book of the law shall not depart out of them mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein: for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success." He had the promise of God. Not only that, but he had God's presence. God's promise, yes, but God's presence also. In verse 9, the Bible says, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. The promises of God and the presence of God will provide us with courage every single time. When you can go to the word of God and you know that what you're doing is biblical, it is truth, it's what God ordained. When you have his, his, his word on it, you have his promises on it. And you know that he says to go with me now. I'll be with you always. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. My friend, that provides you with courage. And if we're going to ever say, I'll never settle, then we're going to have to have some courage. I don't know about you, but that was a pretty daunting task to take over for Moses, this great leader that had led these people of Israel for all of those years. Forty years he led them. And now all of a sudden, Joshua steps into his shoes. Oh, I know Joshua wasn't a young man by that time. I know that he'd had some experience in the things of God. I know that he'd fought many battles, but let me tell you, there's a difference between following and leading. Without courage, we will be tempted to settle. And we need courage to face our fears. Courage to face our critics. Courage to face the enemy. Courage to face the unknown. Courage to face our insecurities. We need courage to pursue a better life, a broader outlook, and a brighter future. We need some courage. See, Joshua would not be denied the best that God had for him and the the best that he had for his people. He was admonished to be very courageous, and that's exactly what Joshua was. He faced the burden of leadership, the attacks of his critics, the enemies of God, and he never settled. He never settled. It seems to me that more and more often believers are willing to settle today. to settle in their personal lives, to settle in their professional lives, to settle in their spiritual lives. If we'll never settle, we're going to have to possess the same qualities and characteristics that we admire in so many of the Bible characters we read about. We're going to need a heart for God like Jabez. We're going to need convictions like the three Hebrew children. We're going to need confidence like David. And we're going to need courage like Joshua. Kind of work together, though, don't they? F. B. Meyer, we noted it already, but he said, "Let us be inspired with a holy ambition to get all that God is willing to bestow." See, these men were determined to get all that God was willing to bestow. They never settled. Now, I'm going to mention this quickly, and we're almost done. We really are. We're already in the closing. But I just want to, I want to say something. Wouldn't it be a tragedy? Wouldn't it be horrible for you or I to never settle in our personal life, to never settle in our professional life, but to settle in our spiritual one? Wouldn't that be sad? Can I tell you that I'm fearful that even amongst believers, although most, it seems to me, settle in many areas of their life, there are those that will not settle in certain areas, but they do settle in their spiritual lives. Oh, I mean, they're going to get all they can out of the world. They're going to go to school and get educated, and they're going to get a good-paying job, and they're going to do their best to provide for their family. They're going to do all those things professionally, Personally, they're going to work on their marriage, and they're going to work on their family, and they're going to be the best mom and dad they can possibly be, but then it comes to their spiritual life, and they struggle reading their Bible, and they don't pray like they should, and they don't attend church faithfully, and they don't have time to get too involved. They'll get a little involved, but not too involved because there's too many other things that they can't settle my friend, do not be guilty one day when you stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. And you have to hear him say, you settled in your spiritual life. Oh, you were a great provider. Oh, you were a good parent. Oh, you did all those things, and that's important. But most important, you should have never settled in your spiritual life. I don't know, maybe we need a heart for God this morning. Maybe you need a heart for God this morning. Maybe you need convictions like the three Hebrew children. Maybe you need some confidence like David or courage like Joshua. What is missing in your life that would cause you to settle? To accept something less than God's best. And I mean God's best in every area of your life. See, I'm not about, well, go ahead and never settle in your spiritual life, but settle in your personal life. No, I'm not about that. I don't think God asked you to do that. I don't think that's ever been God's intent. God wants you to never settle in all, any other three. You ought to be the best you can be. Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, no device, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. That means be your best. That means never settle in your personal life. Never settle in your professional life. Never settle in your spiritual life. That's what it means, all three. To settle in any of them is to let God down. We settle too often. May God help us to figure out what we're lacking that keeps us from never settling. It might be we just don't have the heart for God we need because without it, you can't stand the way you need to, and you'll settle. Without convictions, you'll not stand the way you need to. You'll settle. Without some confidence, you won't stand like you ought to. You'll settle. Without courage, you won't go forward. You won't take ground. You won't stand. You'll settle. I wonder today, maybe you're lost in your sin. You may not know a lot about the Bible, but I can guarantee you one thing. That Bible's written by a God that loves you. And in that book, he has shared with you a love letter that says, I love you and I want you as for my own. He literally sent his only begotten son to die on a cross to pay for your sin, to literally take your place, to die in your stead. That's how much he loves you. And by the way, there's no one good enough To get to heaven on their own they need Jesus and his sacrifice and that's how much God loved you he simply wants you to believe in his son Jesus Christ he wants you to put your faith and trust in his finished work on Calvary he wants you to say I can't do it myself I cannot get to heaven on my own I have to have you and your sacrifice I'm a filthy rotten no-good sinner and I know it down deep I know that as good as I try to be, they're still just, I'm just wicked. I know that I could never be in God's presence because if he don't permit sin in his presence, I'm certainly not going to be there. But boy, how I want to be. I want you to know he wants you to be too. He created you, but now you can become his child. You can become God's child by placing your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Will you trust him today? Will you receive him as your Savior and Lord? Or will you settle for hell? Don't settle for hell. God has so much more for you. So much more. Never settle. Father, we come to you. We ask you to speak to our hearts today to continue to work in our lives even during this time of invitation. There's no doubt in our hearts that we are in need of you. and is Even the very best of believers understands that there are ups and downs in the Christian life and that if there's any downs, it's because our faith has been shaken that we need to be back in your word and in your presence even more. And I pray, dear God, you'd help us to never settle on our spiritual lives, that we wouldn't settle in any area of our life, but instead, Lord, we would exercise that those convictions that we receive from the Word of God, the fact that we can be confident of the fact that you are there for us, you'll never leave us nor forsake us, that we can have courage because we have your promises and we have so many wonderful blessings that you bestow upon us, Lord, may we never, ever settle. May we instead get all that we can from you. There may be someone that's lost without Christ. In just a moment, the music's going to play. Give them the courage to step out of the aisle, into the aisle or out front and just come to see Brother Cavanaugh in front. We'll have somebody take a Bible and show them how they can be saved. We'll show them the promises of God. For the believer, may we be honest with ourselves and admit our needs and ask you to meet them for us. And Maybe it's courage we need. Maybe it's convictions. Maybe it's confidence. Maybe it's a heart for you. Either way, Lord, speak and work in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed amen. as the music